Good evening and welcome to Socrates in the City, the thinking person's alternative to watching the flavor of love. My wife wanted me to use uh, uh, Hogan Knows Best as the joke. Would you have laughed? Raise your hands if you would have laughed. No. Suzanne, you're wrong. You're wrong. No, that's uh, the flavor of love uh, doesn't get better than that or worse, depending on whether you have a camp sensibility or not. And I don't. Um, So where do I come out? I don't know. Uh, But we don't have time. So I'm going to tell you that uh, Flavor of Love was going to be here tonight uh, to give us a little, uh, I mean, Flavor Flav, forgive me, uh, was going to give us a little little hip-hop kind of thing. But, you know, uh, you get to a certain level, and uh, he's a no-show. What what am I going to do? He's a no-show. Flavor Flav sends his regrets. But we uh, we have the lovely... Sue Song, where is she? Sue Song to play uh, piano for us and to, to tickle the ivories with our hip-hop favorites. So thank you, Sue Song. Um, yeah. Thank you, Sue Song. Sue, you got to fight the power. You know what I'm talking about. <laughs> fight the power. Um, it is a great joy to see so many of you here uh, the week of Thanksgiving. I was sure about 40 people uh, would show up. I was, I guess I was wrong. Actually, just to be, we want to be exact. If you're here tonight, would you raise your hand? I just want to get a quick, that's like 20, yeah. Well, anyway, thank you for almost being here. Um, We really, uh, we are very, very excited uh, about having Dr. Alistair McGrath uh, with us tonight. But I am almost more excited to uh, bring you yet another in our unimpeachably straight line of British-accented speakers. Uh, It's almost extraordinary how we've been able to pull that off. I think going all the way back to Baroness Cox, or it just goes goes way, way back. Um, Now, in the interest of full disclosure, uh, Dr. McGrath was born and raised in Syosset, Long Island. Uh, Now divides his time between Trump Towers and Mineola. Also got a Ronkonkoma, I believe. Uh, but uh, so the reality is that the accent is, is going to be fake tonight. Um, but it's actually said to be quite good, not like, you know, Dick Van Dyke's uh, accent in Mary Poppins, which is atrocious. Uh, at, least, at least I thought so. Very kind of fake cockney. Um, but no, tonight you're going to get the real thing, an exquisite fake British uh, accent. Um, and I... I don't know about you, but I really look forward to hearing it. Uh, during rehearsals uh, earlier today, Dr. McGrath just would not give me uh, any, not even a taste of his uh, British accent. He said he wanted to save his voice for the performance. Uh, um, I, I always get a little nervous. I think that, you know, I just, I just need to hear something to put me at ease. I feel like I'm going to get, it's going to be New Zealand or something like that accent. I want a real British, British accent. Just give me a little something, a little hello, governor, something just I know. All right, British, not New Zealand. Uh, but I, I didn't get so much as an hello, governor. Uh, from him, so keep your fingers crossed. I get, I get, uh, I get nervous. Do you watch Footballers' Wives? That would then I'd know that uh, you really tapped in. Yeah, it's a great show, isn't it? So, um, all right. Well, we'll we'll see. We'll see. And uh, if it's a really great accent, later on, Dr. McGrath may sing. I've got a lovely uh, bunch of coconuts when this is all over. <laughs> and and he does. So I think that. Um, We'll, we'll be fine. Incidentally, I should say, I just read uh, in the paper, I don't know if it was this week or last week, that Madonna has adopted another uh, pseudo-British accent. Uh, isn't that sweet? That's sweet. Um, okay, a word on Socrates in the city. If you don't know who we are or what we do, 
Um, would, would you stand up? <laughs> I'm not, not going to embarrass you. Just stand up and, and sing something, just a few bars of something. No, I should tell you, um, actually, I am ser- um, seriously, I want to know how many of you are here for the first, have never been to another Socrates before, is your first one. So quite a, quite a few of you. All right, and uh, how many of you think this is probably going to be your last time? Would you, that's going to be, uh, yeah, that, that's a handful, that's a handful of, uh, of you, because we need the space. We, you know, when it's not Thanksgiving week, most of you would probably not, uh, not have been able to get in. We really relax the whole, we've got a really strict code usually, but this week, uh, we just kind of opened up the floodgates. So, um, but let me tell you, if you don't know what Socrates and City is, Socrates uh, rather famously said, the unexamined life is not worth living. Uh, I think he just broke up with his girlfriend. He was a little philosophical. He was, a little, he was, he was kind of bumming out. Uh, so he got, uh, he got to really thinking. Um, but uh, he said the unexamined life is not worth living. And I think that uh, a, a group of folks, friends of mine and I, we, we thought that it would probably be a cultural service, like a soup kitchen for the mind, uh, to, to, to create some sort of venue in New York City um, where we dared to ask the big, bold questions about the meaning of life, the big questions that are, that are not asked much in places like Manhattan uh, or even on programs like the Jimmy Kimmel Show or Donnie Deutsch. <laughs> they just don't go there. Um, we thought it would be kind of a cultural uh, service uh, to, to do that, to ask those questions and to you know, get it on ABC or one of the networks. And uh, they turn us all down, so it's just you tonight. But um, you, uh, it's just going to have to be you. I'm sorry. But... Um, but we are videotaping it, technically. Very low quality, but it's going to be videotaped. Um, we really did want to ask those questions. Though. We felt that we were doing something that it was important in a place like Manhattan to get philosophical, to ask the questions that, as I say, are not in the culture. We don't talk about this because we sort of figure, well, they probably don't have good answers or we don't want to hear what the answers are going to be. We thought it would be a valuable thing. So um, we started this, and, and here we are. Um, previous Socrates and City events, if you don't know, have dealt with, uh, for example, whether there is life after death, whether God exists, kind of a big question, uh, and whether we can prove it. Uh, we've asked how can a good God allow suffering. Uh, we've talked about the concept of evil. That's a light summary topic for you. Um, we asked can a scientist believe in God, and we had a scientist right there, and he talked about that. Um, and, of course, we asked, how's the NASDAQ doing today? That's always, uh, I don't know, that snuck in there. That's not one of the big questions. Um, but we did start in the fall of 2000, and we have been fundraising ever since. Uh, just something we like to do. Um, but, actually, it's kind of funny. When, when, whenever you're fundraising, whenever you ask, like, a big, you know, business type, you know, to, to, to give to something like this, uh, after they say no, um, they... You know, if they have any kind of conscience, they want to give you a little piece of advice about, you know, how you can raise funds with somebody other than them. And, um, or how you could be more successful. And it's always to start small. You know, you want to grow this thing right. Don't just, don't throw money at it the way I did with the house and the yacht and stuff. Don't, don't, don't grow it. Let the thing have some integrity. Grow it small, you know, and, and just see, you know, you know what I'm talking about. And grow it small. And, um, so, so we took that advice, and we, did, we didn't start out meeting in uh, places like this. We couldn't afford uh, to meet in places like this, and we still can't afford it. Um, but um, but we, did, uh, we did start small in different kinds of places. I remember the first year, we were sort of playing little uh, 
honky-tonk clubs in Alabama. That's, uh, that's just where we were at the time. We're just going to see how that goes. And uh, it's just so different. It's almost funny. I remember there was chicken wire around the stage. Uh, uh, and they just sort of every place seemed to reek of beer and broken dreams. Uh, it's kind of sad. Uh, I'll never forget uh, the look on Sir John Polkinghorne's face. Uh, at one of those places, I, I remember him, uh, he claimed never to have even heard of the term juke joint uh, and didn't know what a two-drink minimum was. Um, um, I remember he kept saying, oh my, oh my. Uh, he was really, uh, he, I guess he didn't understand the chicken wire um, because they don't have that at the Royal Society, uh, al- although they should because they're, they're nuts over there. They're crazy. Um, but... Um, but, it, yeah, he didn't understand the chicken wire. But I remember when, when he began to speak on, on some of the uh, same subjects to which he would uh, later that year win the coveted Templeton Prize, he suddenly understood very well what the chicken wire was for. Uh, yeah, his talk didn't go over so well. Uh, they, they thought he was putting on airs, evidently, and uh, they started throwing some things. Uh, anyway, it was, uh, it was very regretful what happened. Uh, he's, he's a good guy, and... Uh, he, uh, he's going to be here later tonight to apologize. No, but seriously, we've come a very long way uh, since those humble juke joints in Alabama. Uh, today we're privileged to have, as you can see, almost no chicken wire in the room uh, and an audience that seems to require none. But we're going to keep our eyes on you. Trust but verify, I like to say. Um, uh, of course, our calibre, caliber of speakers has not budged. We've just flatlined from Polkinghorne. We've never really, you know... Uh, well, that's a pretty good place to start, wouldn't you think? I, I think so. I think so. But, uh, no, of course, uh, we are, how do I say this, beyond thrilled tonight uh, to have with us in this rather upscale juke joint called the Union League Club, the extraordinary Dr. Alistair McGrath, from whom you'll be hearing in just a moment. Uh, now, Dr. McGrath is, as you probably already know, a professor of historical theology at Oxford University and is president of the Oxford Center for Christian Apologetics. He's also the author of numerous books, including The Twilight of Atheism, The Rise and Fall of Disbelief in the Modern World. He'll be talking on that subject this e- evening, and immediately afterward we'll be signing uh, copies of the book with that title uh, right here. And um, we'd like to encourage you to... Uh, to avail yourself of that, and I'll be happy to sign that book as well. Uh, Just trying to do my part. Uh, Dr. McGrath uh, earned his PhD in molecular biophysics, as so many of us have. (laughs) But... But what particularly uh, distinguishes Dr. McGrath from the rest of us uh, run-of-the-mill molecular biophysicists uh, is, the, is that he is also a world-renowned theologian. Uh, that is, of course, a bit rarer, that combo. Uh, in intellectual circles, that's what's called a twofer. <laughs> Am I getting that right? Twofer? I don't know. Um... He's, um, he's also the author of many, many other books, including Dawkins' God, which I believe we have at our book table here, uh, which deals with the presumably non-existent God of Richard Dawkins, uh, the atheist whose descent into twilight we shall soon uh, hear about in a British accent, I think. I, I'm hoping, I'm hoping. Um, uh, anyway, Dr. McGrath uh, is also the author of the controversial If I Had Done It. 
that's uh, that's uh, if I had done it. Is that subjunctive? Subjunctive. Um, uh, if I had done it, has the subtitle "Indeed, if I had, what a frightful thing it might have been." Uh, and the lighthearted sequel to "If I Had Done It," uh, "Had a Woulda Shoulda." Anyway, these are all marvelous books, and, and all the books uh, that uh, Dr. McGrath uh, has written, whose titles I have not uh, mentioned, are many of them are available uh, at our book table, and most of them will be promoted with a Fox TV special that's going to air next week during sweeps. And if not, you can probably catch it on YouTube like in a month. Um, all right, I think I better get out of here. Uh, a word about our format. Uh, most of you already know. Uh, our format is that uh, our speaker, in this case Dr. McGrath, will speak for 35 or 40 minutes, um, uh, at which point we will have f uh, 35 or 40 minutes of Q&A. We uh, really enjoy uh, that time. Think, uh, think hard about what your questions are and frame them uh, in such a way as uh, they won't exceed, say, tw 12, 13 syllables. And we're going to hold you to that. Um, if you're a friend of mine, 14. Um, but uh, we want to end at uh, 825 sharp, so we want to uh, keep this going. Uh, as I say, when that's all over, Dr. McGrath will uh, sign copies of his book here, and Michael Richards will be here later on to apologize uh, for what I've just said. So uh, without uh, further ado, our privilege to have Dr. Alistair McGrath with us. Welcome, Dr. McGrath. Well, Eric, thank you very much for those kind words. Welcome. I hope you like the accent. I've been, re I've been rehearsing it all my life. <laughs> um, if anyone had told me years ago I'd be uh, coming here to this immensely exciting place in New York to talk about the twilight of atheism, I think I'd, I'd have really been very surprised. Now, see, I grew up in Northern Ireland. Now, for those of you who don't know Northern Ireland, it is a, it is a rather... Um, it's a kind of rather backward place. Um, my apologies to anybody else who comes from Northern Ireland. Um, and um, the great intellectual excitement of my youth was the annual Donica D. Donkey Derby. So as you, as you can see, you know, coming to New York, to somewhere like this, would really be you know, moving upscale in a very big way. So that, that would be very, very exciting. But I think also, I mean, it would surprise me for another reason, which is that when I was um, in high school, I was an atheist. And I have to say, I'm quite an aggressive atheist as well. So the idea I'd be coming to talk about my own Christian faith and also reflect on the future of atheism actually would really have come as a great surprise to me. Now, as you'll all know, atheists come in different kinds. There's a kind of very nice atheist who says, well, of course, I don't believe in God, but I'm so glad that you do. And then, then the, 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 rather, the rather more aggressive sort, who, who will in effect um, want to use language like God delusion, all kinds of things like that, to imply that um, really it's just a pity that the psychiatric hospital is so full these days, because, um, you know, there's clearly room for a few more. And I was in that second category. You know, I was very much of the view, as a younger person, that religion was malevolent, was evil, was destructive, and more than that, that it was on its way out. That during my lifetime, religion would simply fade away to complete insignificance, and that would be a good thing. And certainly you can see why I believed this. I grew up in Northern Ireland, which back in the 1960s, and still I think even today, was noted for its religious violence. And it just seemed to me to be you know, a no-brainer. Religion causes violence, 
get rid of religion, get rid of violence. I mean, what's the problem? Let's do it. And certainly that was the kind of attitude I had um, as a young man. I'm sure you all know the story of the Englishman who visited Northern Ireland. And he went to Belfast and he went out late one Saturday night. And uh, he discovered he was confronted by a group of young men late one night with baseball bats. And they asked him a question. Are you a Protestant or are you a Roman Catholic? He paused and thought because he realized that his own personal future might actually depend rather a lot on the answer that he gave. And he gave quite a good answer. He said, I'm an atheist. (laughs) You see, wide awake. And there was a slight pause. Are you a Protestant atheist or are you? (laughs) So you can see really things were very bad. And certainly it seemed to me obvious that A, atheism made sense. And of course, also, at the time, I was majoring in the natural sciences because I knew my career would be in natural sciences. And again, it seemed obvious to me. The sciences don't just inculcate atheism, they necessitate it. Uh, A good scientist is an atheist. Science simply disproves the existence of God. And that is the end of the matter. There is no further discussion to be had. Now, all right, I was 16 or 17 at the time. Maybe I could be forgiven for that. But nevertheless, this was the way I thought. I think the way that many still think about this whole question. I went to Oxford to study chemistry and go on to research and various things. And I found that my attitudes changed in quite a big way. And I'll talk about that more later in this lecture. But one of the things I want just to make, one of the points I want to make at a very early stage in this lecture that actually I moved from atheism to Christianity and found the natural sciences actually were implicated in that transition. Because the more I began to understand the sciences, the more it helped me to understand that science didn't actually prove or disprove religious beliefs with anything like the certainty I had thought. And there was much more conceptual room for belief for God than I had ever imagined. And so as Richard Dawkins, for example, would say the only viable alternative is moving from religious belief to atheism, as in his own case, I and many others would say there are alternatives which are well worth thinking about. So let's begin to talk about atheism. Atheism has always been around. It was there, for example, in ancient Greece, but of course it became really significant in the West in the 18th century. And I would suggest that really we can identify a period of almost exactly 200 years when atheism really moved from being a fringe movement to really dominating the center of Western culture. And we could say that you can frame this with two events. One event was the French Revolution of 1789. More than that, the fall of the Bastille, which was seen as a symbol of tyranny. And in many ways, the French Revolution can be seen as about atheism being a liberator. If we abandon belief in God, we are no longer shackled to the past. We can break out of this. We can do new things. We can do exciting things. The future is bright. It's godless and it is free. And certainly those very powerful sentiments 
have had a very big impact on Western culture. But in 1989, 200 years later, something else happened. As you all know, the Berlin Wall fell. The Berlin Wall had become a symbol of oppression. When it fell, people danced on its ruins. Why? Because by that stage, atheism, at least in Eastern Europe, had begun to be seen as oppressive. The same atheism that once had been seen as a liberator, ushering a new phase of freedom, hope, optimism in Western culture, seemed to many people instead to simply have brought in a new oppression. So in this lecture, I just want to begin to look at some themes that emerge from atheism. And what I'm going to do, if I may, is look at the main lines of argument that atheism has found so persuasive over that period and begin to engage with them. This has become a major issue in Western culture since 9-11. Because for many cultural observers, not all but many, 9-11 is all about religion inspiring acts of violence. And therefore you'll find writings by Sam Harris, by Daniel Dennett, and by Richard Dawkins, all of which take as their inspiration 9-11, and they argue very powerfully, very rhetorically, that atheism is needed more today than ever before, because if there were atheism, there'd be no more 9-11s. And it's a very powerful line of argument. What I want to do in this lecture is just begin to raise some issues relating to those main lines of argument and see where they take us. So let's begin to look at these. I'll interact from time to time with Harris, with Dennett, with Dawkins, especially his book, The God Delusion, and try and ask where things are going in modern atheism. Let me begin, if I may, by asking a very simple question. If you take Daniel Dennett's book, Breaking the Spell, Richard Dawkins' book, The God Delusion, and Sam Harris's rather short recent book, Letter to a Christian Nation, they come up to about 900 pages. Why is it necessary to write 900 pages showing that atheism is right when religion is meant to have disappeared altogether from Western culture by now? Because many of you here this evening will remember the ethos of the 1960s. I can remember it. Religion is on its way out. Do you remember the Time magazine culture? Is God dead? Very dramatic stuff. All this language about the future secularization of our culture, that religion was simply being marginalized. It would play no role in private life or indeed in public square life from you know, the end of the century onwards. And it just hasn't worked out. Uh, indeed, Michael Shermer, president of the Skeptic Society, wrote a book four years ago in which he said that never in America's history has God been so significant in public life. And so obviously, there's a real issue there. Nobody likes a failed prophecy, and clearly that's what we have in this situation. Why has religion made such a comeback? Well, the answer we find in these writers can be summarized along a number of lines, and I'll try and indicate what they are. Number one, because people want to believe in God, and they lead such sad 
and unimaginative lives that they really need something to give them dignity, to give them meaning, to give a sense of locatedness and position. So they invent God. God is a delusion which they willfully or sometimes accidentally take on board. Now again, you'll find an argument in Richard Dawkins' book, The God Delusion, but really it goes all the way back to the 1830s, to Ludwig Feuerbach. And many of you will know his argument. There is no God. Therefore, the fact that people do believe in God requires to be explained. Since there isn't a God, we have to explain why people should invent one. And they invent a God because they project their longings onto some kind of imaginary transcendent screen, and they call the result God. Now, again, it's a very influential argument. It's also, as you may have noticed, slightly circular. There is no God, therefore we have to kind of assume that people believe in God because there's some kind of uh, mental misfiring going on. But listen to the argument very carefully. People want to believe in God. Well, actually, a lot of Christian theologians would agree with that. Think of Augustine or C.S. Lewis, that famous prayer from Augustine. You have made us for yourself, and our heart is restless until it finds its rest in you. For Christians, people are hardwired to believe in God. That's just the way things are. But back to Feuerbach. Feuerbach's argument is this. People want there to be a God, and therefore this means that God cannot exist. Now you can see there is some, some force to what he's saying. I mean, let's agree, nothing need exist, because I wanted to. It would be wonderful if I had um, you know, a, bill of a, hundred, a pile of $100 bills there, or if I could speak with an accent like Eric's. No, wouldn't it be wonderful? You know, but you know, it's just not going to happen. I can wish all I want. But does it follow that because I want something, it can't be there? As you can hear, my voice is going rather croaky, so I might say, well, wouldn't it be wonderful if I could find a glass of water? And, um, oh my goodness, what do we have here? Um, you see the point I'm trying to make, that wishing something to be so and it being so are not actually inconsistent whatsoever. So there really is a kind of logical flaw there that we need to look at. And again, many people have made a further point that actually Feuerbach's argument, if it proves anything, actually proves the, that atheism is in the same category as religious faith. Why do people not believe in God? Because they want that to be the case. If there is no God, then we can do what we like. There's no higher authority. We are our own masters. We can be autonomous. Think of um, Czeslaw Mishlos, a very wonderful article, The Discreet Charm of Nihilism, in which he says, look, the new opium of the people is the idea there is no God, because if there's no God, we are accountable to nobody. We can do what we like, and nobody is going to stop us. So again, you can argue that atheism itself can be explained away on this basis. So I'm not sure how far that takes us, but let's move on and look at another major theme that we find in contemporary atheist critiques of religion. 
And let's go for the big one, which I think is an important one. Namely, that religion leads to violence. And again, I think that's a very plausible criticism. As I was growing up in Northern Ireland, it just seemed so obviously true. And we have to, I think, begin by saying that there is no doubt that religion can and has been involved in eliciting acts of violence. And that needs to be put on the table as something that needs to be addressed. It's real and it's important. But I think there is a deeper question that needs to be asked. Every movement has its pathological side. Is this actually typical of religion? Or is it to be seen more as an unfortunate tendency in some sections of the movement? It's a very important point, because certainly if you think of the history of the 20th century, you begin to realize that actually when atheism moved from being on the fringes of culture to actually being a very significant political power in its own right, for example, in the Soviet Union, that actually it seemed to replicate the worst vices of religion. Again, Richard Dawkins in his book, The God Delusion, says that atheists would never and have never committed acts of violence or oppression in the name of atheism. <laughs> now, I mean, this is a personal creedal statement, I think, masquerading as history. I mean, those of you who, who know the history of the Soviet Union will know that between about 1918 and 41, something like 90% of Russian churches were dynamited and about 90% of Soviet priests were simply eliminated. You know, there's a serious issue here. Why was this done? Because religion was seen to be an enemy, something that needed to be eliminated. So I want to try and put on the table the fact that atheism, too, has generated its own form of violence. But actually, I want to put a much more important question on the table as well. Is this really about religion and atheism, or is it actually a question about human nature? Is there something about human nature which means that there is something within us which is inspired to great positive actions? but might also be sucked down to do some dreadful things as well. That's certainly what Nietzsche said about human nature, that there seems to be some tension within it, that we long to do the good, but we end up doing bad things as well. Let me give you an example. When I was studying chemistry at Oxford, uh, one of my set textbooks was called Fisa and Fisa, Organic Reaction Mechanisms. It was 700 pages long. So I got to know Professor Fieser very, very well uh, on many late nights in the college library. And it was a very, very good book. And as I learned more about Professor Fieser, who was professor of chemistry at Harvard, I discovered some incredible things about him. He synthesized an incredible variety of chemicals that are significant medically. The blood's anticoagulating factor, various forms of steroid. If any of you are hemophiliacs or no hemophiliacs, this man will have been of importance to you. So many, many good things, but also one invention that isn't talked about very much. Because in the year 1942, 
the U.S. Army came to Professor Fieser and explained to him they were having a slight problem. They were trying to neutralize Japanese troop formations on various islands in the Pacific, and they couldn't do it. They needed something that would be effective against troops, especially troops who were dug in. And Professor Fieser invented napalm. Now, um, I mean, napalm was designed to kill. Now, what am I to make of this? I could say science is evil because of Professor Fieser. We ought to excoriate him and the natural sciences because of that. I wouldn't do that at all. I think that all the evidence shows he was a man who had great aspirations, but maybe ended up doing something that he might have looked back on and later regretted. And I think actually most of us are like that, that we find ourselves you know, lifted upwards, but also at times pulled down. So I'm not sure this simplistic mantra, religion leads to violence, is really quite as simple as we're led to believe. Some of you may have read Richard Pape's very interesting books, book um, on suicide bombings, in which he looks at every known case. And his conclusion is very, very interesting. He argues that when you look at every case, religion is neither a necessary nor a sufficient condition for this phenomenon. What seems to be essential is a people group who feel that they are being oppressed by a much bigger nation. They have no regular military resources at their disposal whatsoever, and therefore they are driven to use themselves as weapons and to try and take as many people with them in order to resist this occupying force. Now again, politically, that may well be right, but it does remind us that the role of religion in these things isn't anything like as straightforward as some more simplistic analyses might suggest. But you might say, well, no, that might be right, but nevertheless, if there were no religion in the world, then this world would surely be a place that is much less prone to violence. So let's try thinking about that for a while. Because it seems to me, again, to be a very important argument and certainly one that I would have resonated with as a younger man. But those of you who are sociologists will know that human beings are very, very good at inventing social distinctions. In other words, ways of distinguishing in-groups and out-groups. Religion is one of them. So is race. So is tribal identity. So is economic status. So is, and the list goes on. And the real issue is that religion is in there, along with a long list of other things that can become major causes of social division and lead to violence. But it's not the only one by any means. One of the things I think we need to be aware of is that human beings are very good at, I have to use a, a technical a rather clumsy word here, they're very good at transcendentalizing things. In other words, you take something that is not actually divine at all, but you make it something that is of supreme authority, which cannot be challenged, which defines a people group, 
and which in the end becomes the cause of social division. To give you an example, think back to the French Revolution, to the year 1792, when the reign of terror was underway and things were really getting quite nasty. It was the atheist phase of the French Revolution. And Madame Roland was brought to the guillotine in the Place de la Révolution. And she was being executed on trumped-up charges. She'd, she'd become politically inconvenient. And as she was led to the guillotine, she pointed to a statue of liberty and said, Liberty, what crimes are committed in your name? Now, you see the point that if there's no God, well, we, we elevate something else to fill that gap. We take something and we ramp it up so it has almost quasi-divine status. In this case, it will be liberty. In other cases, it might be integrity. It might be political correctness. Whatever it is, you can see how it happens. And again, it just seems to be part of the way that we are as people. I think we need to work very hard to eliminate violence of all sorts, certainly including religious violence. And I'm very, very keen on these dialogues that try to do something about that. But A, I don't think eliminating religion is going to make things better. And B, I think trying to eliminate religion is actually going to cause such violence because of the importance that people actually attach to their religious identity. Let's move on. A major theme we find in a lot of recent atheist writing is science disproves God. That there is an inexorable tension between the natural sciences and Christianity, all religions, above all Christianity, and that science and religion are locked in a battle to the death which only one can win, and it is going to be science. Now, I regret to say that you find that view in the writings of Richard Dawkins. I say I regret to say it because I simply don't believe it's true. It's not true historically, and I don't think it's true as a present-day reality at all. The historians of science will tell us that the reality looks rather different. In fact, Ronald Numbers of the University of Wisconsin would say that one of the prime myths of popular historiography is that science and religion are locked in mortal combat. He says it's just not like that. At times they've been intensely collaborative. At times there have been real tensions. But it's always a complex, nuanced picture. And this idea of a perennial warfare between science and religion really belongs to the 1890s. So let's just try and focus on the questions that are being raised here. Science disproves God. Now again, you've all heard that mantra. It's a very significant popular feeling. But I'm afraid it doesn't necessarily mean that it's right. In my own case... I moved from atheism to Christian faith, catalyzed by my growing interest in the sciences and my knowledge of the philosophy of science. Just think of some recent books that have been published. In 2006, you've seen books by Daniel Dennett, Richard Dawkins, and Sam Harris, all arguing for a link between science 
and atheism. Maybe not so well known, but they should be, are Owen Gingrich's very interesting book, God's Universe, professor of astronomy at Harvard, Francis Collins' very interesting book, The Language of God. Francis Collins directs the Human Genome Project. And Paul Davis' intriguing book, The Goldilocks Enigma, all about the fine-tuning of the universe. Why Goldilocks? Remember the story? Porridge, some too hot, some too cold, some just right. Goldilocks all about the universe being just right for the emergence of life. Interestingly, Gingrich and Collins argue that science makes most sense seen from a Christian perspective. Paul Davis doesn't say that. He says that there is something in there or out there that inclines us to believe in a God, but not necessarily a Christian God. But again, you can see the point. These are all significant scientists pointing in the opposite direction. It seems to me the situation is simply that we can interpret the natural world in an atheist way. We can interpret the natural world in a Christian way, or we can interpret the natural world in an agnostic way. And a good case can be made for each, but it is not necessitated by nature itself. Or to put that in very, very simple English, all of these viewpoints are perfectly okay, but nature itself does not force us to choose this one rather than that one. Indeed, as you probably know, the evidence suggests that most scientists actually get their beliefs about God from somewhere else and then take them and use them in their scientific work. Um, some recent surveys suggest they're not, I'm sure, entirely accurate, but about 40% of scientists do believe in God, 40% don't, 20% aren't sure. And what sort of God's being talked about? Interestingly, the question asked was, do you believe in a God who could be expected to answer prayer? So a very specific notion of God. So it seems to me that the question is much more complex than some of these rather simple discussions might suggest. Stephen Jay Gould, who died recently of lung cancer, I think had some very interesting things to say. In his book, Rocks of Ages, he argues, look, science simply cannot, by the legitimate application of its methods, decide the God question one way or the other. And I think most scientists would actually think that that's the case. Now, again, Richard Dawkins does not think that that is the case. Uh, he argues that real scientists ought to be atheists. And therefore, I regret to say, challenges the scientific credentials of people like Freeman Dyson for daring to take an interest in religion and occasionally saying something nice about it. And I think if I could express a real concern here, um, you know, I love the sciences. I think they are wonderful. But if you say, as Dawkins does, science entails atheism, which everyone knows isn't the case, then actually what you are going to do is persuade a large body of religious people that science is off limits. And I don't think that's right. And I think that the position of science in our culture is so precarious 
that to actually imply it's anti-religious is going to lose its support at a moment in its history where it needs all the support it can get. And therefore, I just want to say, I think Richard Dawkins is doing the sciences a disservice by portraying it in this way. But let's move on and look at another argument, which again, very often we hear. And that is that in some way, religion is pathological. In other words, it, it is bad for people. It causes them to do some, some silly things, to get all kind of messed up, to go on guilt trips and things like that. And again, that is a serious issue. I think all of us will know people who we feel in some way have been damaged by religion. But it is, I think, extremely important to try and draw a distinction between what is normal and what is pathological. And again, Freud's great stereotype, I think, still lingers that in some way all religion is pathological. But I'm not really sure that's helpful, and I'm certainly sure that's not right. Since about 1990, there's been a huge amount of empirical research trying to ask what impact does religion have on people's well-being. Now again, we need to be aware this is an ongoing research field, that there are all kinds of problems involved in the research. For example, what counts as being religious? What counts as well-being? Well, the answer generally is, is, is longevity and speed of recovery from illness. So let's agree there are all kinds of difficulties here. But the work has been done and continues to be done. In a very important survey of 2001, Cohen and Koenig looked at 100 evidence-based studies. Not 100 people, but 100 peer-reviewed studies. And here is what they found. 79%, 79 of these studies showed at least one positive correlation between religious involvement and well-being. Then 20 either showed no pattern, in other words, there was nothing there to identify, or a mixed pattern, a little bit good, a little bit bad, but nothing conclusive. And one showed a negative correlation between religious involvement and well-being. Now, we must not overstate this point. Um, this does not prove there is a God. And as the research is still ongoing, we mustn't say that sorts things out. That's the end of it. Because clearly, the work is still being done. But I think there are two points to make here. Number one, if people like Richard Dawkins and Sam Harris were right, shouldn't those figures actually have been the other way around? Shouldn't they have shown that in some way religious involvement actually was having a negative impact on people's well-being because of psychological damage or something like that. But that is not seen. And secondly, and a major issue here in the United States, if a person's religious commitment and spirituality is implicated in well-being and is implicated in speed of recovery, doesn't that have implications for public health care policy in this nation? Again, a very sensitive, but I think very interesting issue to raise. 
Let me move on, if I may, very briefly and look at one further major area in which atheists have had much to say. This is all to do with the idea of faith. Again, if we take Richard Dawkins, we find the characteristic position being something like this. The sciences are based on rigorous evidence-based thinking. They prove their conclusions. On the other hand, religious belief is simply about running away from any kind of intellectual engagement. It's about disengagement. It's about um, believing despite the evidence or in the teeth of the evidence. And again, you will find that in Dawkins' writings from 1976 until the present day. And it's a very widespread position within much atheist writing. And it is, I think, well worth thinking about. In 2004, I published a book called Dawkins' God, um, looking at Richard Dawkins' religious views. And since then, I find myself going around England giving lectures on exactly that topic. And what I do is I, I say, here's what Richard Dawkins says, here is main arguments, here are my responses to those arguments. And after one lecture, I was confronted by a very angry young man who came up to me and he was furious. He, he wagged his finger at me. And he said, you have destroyed my faith. You know, he said, I believed passionately in atheism because of Dawkins' writings. And you have destroyed my faith by showing his arguments do not hold water. Now, as I reflected on this, I think two thoughts went through my mind. Number one, well, if he did base his faith on Richard Dawkins, maybe this was to be expected. But, but secondly... Secondly, I think much more importantly, how much faith matters to people. Because actually it means you, you construct a worldview. You base your ethics, your understanding of who you are, your understanding of what life's all about on a set of beliefs that actually cannot be proven. Some of you may have read Terry Eagleton's very interesting review of Dawkins' God Delusion in the London Review of Books. And one of the points he makes, and again, is an intriguing point that you may like to think about, is that all of us are perfectly used to holding certain beliefs as being true or reliable, even though we cannot prove them to be absolutely true. That's just the way, the way life is, Terry Eagleton says. And therefore, we, we, we ought to expect that the best that we can hope to show is that there are, there are good reasons for thinking that these beliefs are true, even if we cannot prove them with absolute certainty. Now again, just think of a hypothetical experiment. I want you to imagine that you have a leading atheist philosopher sharing this platform with me. And both this philosopher and I are challenged to prove our beliefs. Now, I would try very hard to give you the reasons why I believe in God, and I'm sure I would do it reasonably well, but I would not be able to prove my case with knockdown certainty. But neither would my opponent. I mean, the whole argument about whether there is a God, whether there isn't, is stalemated and has been so for many years. And intriguingly, that brings us to the position that the person who does say there is a God and the person who does say there is no God are actually taking their positions as a matter of faith. 
So it's an intriguing possibility to think about that. So what, what do we say about this? Well, I think there are two things I want to say. One is I believe passionately that religious belief does need to be challenged. Why do you believe this? Can you give us reasons for thinking that this makes sense? I think that's right. It's about being held accountable in the public arena. And I'm very, very happy to do that. I think it's very necessary and very important. But number two, there are many Christian writers who already do this. And I'm slightly surprised when I read Harris, Dawkins, and Dennett, who seem to have managed to get to this point in their lives without actually having encountered people like Richard Swinburne, Alvin Plantinga, Nicholas Walterstorff, C.S. Lewis even, Thomas Aquinas, all of whom I think give good indications of what the intellectual basis of faith might be. But I think there's a much more important point here, which I want to just make as I begin to move towards bringing this lecture to an end. And it's this. Might there be limits to the natural sciences? Again, very often, the question of whether we can prove God's existence is very often treated as a scientific question, whereas clearly it's a much broader issue than that. Now, if you take an atheist philosopher like Bertrand Russell, Russell will argue that the only knowledge that we can have is scientific knowledge. What the sciences cannot show cannot be truly known. But let me offer a counter-perspective. I'm looking at the writings of Sir Peter Medower, who won the Nobel Prize for Medicine back in the 1960s for his work on immunobiology. And in a book intriguingly entitled The Limits of Science, published in 1986, Medower argued like this. When it comes to explaining the material world, there are no limits to science. If it can't explain things now, it will be able to explain them in the future. But then he says there are metaphysical questions. He gives some examples. What is the point of life? Why are we here? And he makes the point these are real questions that matter to people. And his argument is that science actually cannot give convincing answers to those questions. If they can be answered, they have to be answered on other grounds. And that seems to me to be a very important point. For example, uh, a quotation from Richard Dawkins uh, from The Devil's Chaplain, published in 2003. Science has no means for determining what is right and what is wrong. Now on that, I think he's right. Here would be the question I'd want to ask in response. Since one of the biggest questions confronting the human race is what is the good and how do we live the good life? And if the sciences cannot tell us what is good, are we left without any guidance at all as to how we live the good life? I don't think we are. I think we're able to say, well, maybe science can't help us here. That's no criticism of science. It's simply saying it's very good in its own field, but in this field, we need some help from other sources. 
and it just seems to me it opens up some very important questions about the limits of science, the sources of our knowledge, and questions like that. But I must bring this lecture to an end. I want to raise the possibility that atheism may be going through a difficult phase at the moment. Again, you might say, well, there are all these atheist books appearing. Um, surely this suggests that actually it's going through a renaissance. Having read those books, I want to just make a suggestion, and that is that I see a lot of assertion, a lot of rhetoric, but I'm not quite sure I see the knockdown arguments that would really persuade me that atheism is on an upward cusp about to make a major comeback. Indeed, when I read in particular Harris's book and Dawkins' book, I did a kind of reverse engineering job trying to ask what kind of reader is envisaged by these works. And my own feeling is this, these are probably meant to reassure anxious atheists that actually everything is okay within that <laughs> worldview. But again, I may be wrong on that. But if atheism is going through a difficult time, is that the end of the matter? Well, I don't think it is. Let me make one historical observation, which I then want to apply to the present-day situation. Historically, atheism has always been at its strongest and also at its most plausible when religion is seen to be far too powerful and possibly dangerous. What if that kind of perspective begins to become plausible again in North America? So paradoxically, paradoxically, the future of atheism might actually lie with religious people, who if they were to do some very silly or very dangerous things, might persuade the American public that maybe the time has come to re-examine atheism and see if it might actually have something to say in that situation. I've spoken for far too long. I've raised a whole series of very contentious issues, and I'm very happy to engage in a dialogue about any of them or indeed to answer any questions that I didn't deal with in this talk that you'd like to explore. So thank you very much indeed for being so patient. Thank you, thank you very much, Eric, and thank you, Dr. McGrath, for a fascinating talk. Two, two questions. I'll, get, I'll phrase them very quickly. One, about 20 years ago, I was at Yale at a conference with uh, Alvin Plantinga and Sir John Eccles. And Sir John Eccles, uh, who was a, 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 I believe, a physicist, uh, am I right, a neurologist, neurologist uh, and a man of faith, said that for him, the greatest question, the greatest argument against the existence of God was the scientific materialist assertion that we don't actually have free will, that our thoughts are very, what we think of as our souls, our consciousness, are simply the result of deterministic events in the brain. In other words, dominoes knocking over other dominoes as a result of purely causal mechanistic things, which, events which can be explained materialistically. And he tried to get around that using quantum physics. And he, he argued that at the level of the, the neurology of the brain and the firing of the neurons in the brain, 
that was quantum indeterminate. In other words, indeterminacy intervened there and mechanism, mechanistic determinism could not explain that. However, it's been 20 years since then and I'm wondering if the research has answered that question. Second quick one, isn't, isn't, <laughs> sorry, but that's a slam dunk. This that's just, a, yeah. Okay. <laughs> Second quick one is, is, isn't atheism, a, from, a, from a Darwinian point of view, isn't atheism a counteradaptive strategy because atheists don't have kids? And so they're going to disappear anyway. Right. Well, we, we'll think about that second one. Um, the, the first one, the first is a very good question. And certainly, I mean, there's no doubt, for example, again, I haven't talked about the God delusion by Dawkins all that much, but certainly um, in one of the sections he tries to argue that there may be some, he talks about being psychologically predisposed towards religion. And he does give a, a recognizable variant of what you've just described as, as an explanation for this. In some way, we are uh, neurologically pre-programmed to believe in God. Now, again, I, I find the argument puzzling, and I think that there are two elements to my puzzlement. Number one is the clarification of psychological mechanisms is part of a picture, but it's only part of a picture. I mean, for example, I could uh, say what a nice picture is and point towards it. And you could give a very good neurological account of what motivated me to look in that direction, to extend my arm, how all the muscles were coordinated in doing so. But that is only the explanation of actually um, how I did that. It does not account for the thought, which actually was elicited by looking at that picture. And so the key point in any psychological explanation is that of multiple causality. There are many interacting uh, causes. So, you know, one can't simply say there is one cause, it's, um, it's the firing of neurons, that's it. I mean, it's clearly much more complex than that. And secondly, I mean, there are many schools of thought about whether there is a God, whether there's not a God. And I would say they make very interesting points which need to be assessed. I am not entirely persuaded by those who say that those different schools of thought are to be explained mechanistically, deterministically, randomly, simply by the firing of neurons. It seems to me that the clarification of the mechanism may be important, but it does not eliminate the fact that there are still rational arguments that need to be deployed in evaluating different positions. And it seems to me that actually on that point, um, although we've clarified much about the mechanisms, the arguments remain on the table and actually have been surprisingly little uh, disturbed by the advances you describe. Thank you. Thank you. Although from the standpoint of history and epistemology, I don't actually subscribe to much of what you said, my question will not be about uh, polemical pot shots against atheism, which is my interpretation of your very articulate talk. My question is instead about your chosen faith. You describe yourself as a Christian, and I'm curious, why do you embrace Christianity in particular as opposed to deism or any of the other scriptured revealed religions or the infinite number of many other religions that have existed through time? 
Well, I think that's a very fair question. And certainly there are many worldviews, some of which might be described as religious, some not. I mean, atheism, although, of course, actually there are many different kinds of atheism. I think very often atheism is reactive and therefore is defined by the kind of God you don't believe in, as well, of course, as deism, as Christianity, Buddhism, Islam, and so on. So I think all of us who, who choose any worldview actually have to give an account of why we chose that rather than this. In my own case, uh, certainly I am a Christian and have chosen one, I hope, on the basis not of polemical potshots at atheism, but much more because of a considered evaluation of all the options and, again, a considered reflection that this seems to be the best. I'll try and give you a response to this um, in the the short time I have at my disposal. One of the the key questions is this. Um, The way in which one judges any worldview, I think, is partly in terms of its internal consistency, partly because of its, or on account of its evidential foundations, but also because of its capacity to make sense of things. In other words, I'm asking how much explanatory potential does this worldview have? In the case of atheism, the very big issue is how much light does it cast on religious belief, which is a very significant phenomenon. In my case, I I take the view, now this is open to challenge, I'm very, very clear about this, actually Christianity offers the best big picture, making sense of things. And again, if I quote from C.S. Lewis, who I very often find a, a useful discussion partner in this point, in a very interesting essay on theology and poetry, he wrote these words, I believe in Christianity as I believe the sun has risen, not simply because I see it, but because by it I see everything else. And the point he was trying to make was that there was an explanatory fecundity, there was an explanatory richness, which really made a lot of sense of things. So again, because I haven't very much time to answer it, but again, I want to stress it's a very good question. My response would be that I'm a Christian because I believe, to use language of Gilbert Harmon's famous essay, it offers the, the best explanation, best evidence, but also best explanatory capacity. But that, I think, is, a, is something I would have to debate and prove rather than simply assert. And therefore, although it may seem that I'm simply asserting it, I'm simply trying to explain why this rather than something else. I'd be very happy to, to explain that further afterwards if we would have time to do so. So thank you for that. Well, I enjoy a challenge. And so uh, I ask you to take the other side and tell me how the atheists explain the phenomenon of Jesus. You've no doubt heard one solitary life. He only lived three years. He only preached for three years. Uh, He was crucified. He had nothing going for him. And yet now we have Christianity off the back of a three-year ministry. And how do they explain how that could be possible unless it were true? It's a very interesting question. So, I mean, what you're asking me to do is to step into the way I used to think and try and give a response. And again, um, I would have to say that, um, that um, to be fair to atheism, um, you know, the, 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 the response I will give would not be as good if an athe- as if an atheist were to give it. So therefore, I need to be very clear about this. But again, let me try and say what, for example, Richard Dawkins would say on the basis of a discussion of cargo cults uh, in his book, The God Delusion. I mean, what Dawkins would say is, well, actually, human beings are very gullible. Uh, and, and actually, they are predisposed to believe things on the basis of insubstantial evidence. 
And he would therefore, I suspect, argue that um, there would be a whole series of convergent issues here. One would be that there was some kind of uh, possible mass hysteria or hallucination or some kind of social pressure to believe in Jesus, which was sustained by a group dynamic that can be at least partially explained by social psychology. Now, again, you know, he would need to be here to actually defend that. Um, my own response would be um, certainly that uh, one, one must take such challenges very, very seriously. Uh, but nonetheless, the, the reason that Christianity is still here today is that it is seen to be intellectually resilient and spiritually nourishing. That although not all believe in it, sufficient do to indicate that actually there really is something there that needs to be taken with immense seriousness. And I think that, that my, my, my difficulty with many of the atheist critiques of Christ that I have read is that actually that they very often have to um, present him in, in a very, very inadequate way to actually um, make him fit the theory. And again, for example, if, if you read Dawkins' book, The God Delusion, which is simply very much my mind at the moment, I mean, he spends two and a half pages talking about Jesus. And he argues that Jesus has, I quote, dodgy family values. After all, he was rude to his mother. Uh, and he also um, makes a very curious point at some length, which is that Jesus... Um, Jesus encourages the formation of in-groups which exclude Gentiles and those who are on the margins of society. And again, I find that quite difficult because um, as I read the parable of the Good Samaritan, actually I see Jesus doing quite the opposite, actually going out of his way to, to um, reach beyond the margins of traditional Judaism to include women, to include Gentiles, to, to even include children. So again, I, I just have to say I found that section of his book, The God Delusion, really very, very unsatisfactory. So again, I, 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 find, I find it difficult really to, um, to, 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 to empathize completely with atheism on this point. Um, one of my favorite German theologians is Jürgen Moltmann. He tells a story of how he became a Christian, of all places, in a prisoner of war camp in England. And, and he says, look, you know, he just finds something so compelling about Jesus that although he didn't personally believe in God, he began to believe in God because Jesus did. See what I'm saying? And, and so that, that really was a starting point for a spiritual pilgrimage. Again, your question needs a much more detailed answer. I've just sketched the beginnings of one, but thank you very much for that very intriguing question. Well, thank you, but you have failed to convince me. Well, um, we, we can talk afterwards. Thank you. Thank you. Could you perhaps expand on your final point, how American Christians may encourage atheists to reconsider uh, the worldview of atheism? Could you give a few examples of perhaps what you mean? I think if we look at the rise of atheism in 18th century Europe, um, France is a very good example, but of course you begin to see the same thing happening subsequently in Germany and England. There's this perception that, um, that Christianity occupies a position of social status, that it has privilege, that it has power, and that it is um, potentially quite dangerous because it allows you to bring transcendental arguments to justify actions 
which might not seem defensible on other grounds. In other words, um, it has far too much power, and that, that power is potentially arbitrary and dangerous. And therefore, the argument was the only way to, to, to deal with this is, in effect, not to critique religion's power, but rather to critique religion itself. In other words, the best way of neutralizing the influence of religion is by deconstructing its intellectual foundations in the first place. Now, again, the question I raise at the end of this is, what happens if, for example, here in the United States, a sufficient critical mass of people begin to feel that actually Christianity has had a dangerous impact on public policy, and therefore atheism begins to gain public credibility as a belief system because people feel that religion is not being exercised responsibly. And the only way of dealing with that, therefore, is to discredit religion. So that, that's a scenario I asked you to, to consider. Now, it may never happen. But I just want to raise the possibility that, that uh, religious people do need to be very self-critical so that this point does not actually happen. That, in fact, it lies within the power of those who are Christians to ensure that their faith is always exercised responsibly so that the public pressure for challenge of the intellectual foundations of faith does not actually become significant because religion is seen to be exercised responsibly. And again, I make a similar point in relation to religious violence. It's there, but we can do something about it. There, there's a possibility of reform. It's not abolition we need, it's reform. And that's why I'm just suggesting that uh, whilst I personally think atheism is not in a very healthy state at the moment, I don't think Christians should become complacent. There's always this need to self-examine and ask, are we really living out the Christian life in the best possible way, or do we need to rethink at a couple of points? Thank you. You, uh, you always have a very unique perspective as a biophysicist and a theologian, and uh, you seem to, seem to believe that religion and science can have some kind of fruitful interaction. I was, uh, can you offer um, some, some insight into the, what dialogue there is between the, like the creation accounts and the first few chapters of Genesis and, uh, and current scientific opinion on that, um, and maybe even just outline an approach to Genesis that that leads to any, some kind of fruitful dialogue? Yes, I'm very glad to talk about that. Um, we need, to, I think, to remember that um, um, the whole idea of creation is not limited to the first chapters of Genesis. It's there at every level of the Old Testament. And that, um, you know, very often Christians focus down on those first chapters of Genesis as if that's it. Whereas, in fact, that is a relatively small part of a much bigger biblical witness to the whole idea of creation. And it seems to me that there's some very important issues here. One of them, obviously, is how you interpret uh, those opening chapters. Um, are, are they to be taken as literal history? Are they to be taken as a, a, a rather poetical description of the ultimate dependence of the world upon God? How are we to do that? And certainly, that's an extremely important debate that should take place within Christian theology. I mean, I, I, again, as you will know, a very significant debate is whether the book of Genesis in some way renders um, incomprehensible the idea of evolution. Certainly, some North American Christians argue that. Others would say, no, the language there about the earth bringing things forth 
actually is, is a way of beginning to think about the emergence of things from within a natural process. But I think the most interesting question that emerges from this is this. Um, if we do believe in some form of creation, that is to say that in some way um, the, the nature of God is reflected in the way the world is, then that actually gives a motivation for scientific research. And again, it's been enormously important in cultural history. That if you go back to the 16th century and read, for example, John Calvin, Calvin says, look, um, he gives two examples. He talks about um, uh, physiologists and astronomers. And he says, look, these people have the opportunity of studying the wisdom of God much more closely than I can because they're able to study the works of God, meaning creation, and hence gain a deepened appreciation of God's wisdom. And certainly for many natural scientists, that's an extremely important religious motivation for scientific research. It's all about um, looking at what God has done and getting an enhanced appreciation of the, the wisdom of God by an engagement with nature. That's still here in our culture, and I certainly think we need to keep on encouraging that. Thank you. This will have to be our last question. Are you sure? That was the last question. <laughs> <laughs> it should be. I want to I know, did you play rugby? He wasn't a rugby player, Eric. Okay. All right, I'll give you one more question. Okay, great. Um, beginning of the 20th century uh, in Vienna, the uh, philosophy school, Wittgenstein, that we know of, most of his uh, um, peers, um, out of intellectual honesty, committed suicide. <clears throat> Wittgenstein... <laughs> Uh, moved forward, as you know, and died in the 50s, whenever it was, and was being baptized into the Catholic faith. Um, and he said to one of his colleagues, he's, uh, they asked him why he was doing that, and he said, because of hope. Uh, is there any hope in the atheistic movement, and how do they communicate hope is really a very moving and uh, purposeful question for me. Yes, that's a very good question. And you're certainly right about the... Um, the early Vienna circle, you think of Carnap and others, for example, there is this very, very strong sense that we are limited to what we can see, what we can observe, and we can't go beyond that. And again, if you, if you look at how they responded to the emerging political crisis in Austria around that time, there was nothing transcendent. They were simply limited to what they could see, and for that reason, as you quite rightly say, many of them were reduced to despair. Now, Wittgenstein branched off in a rather different direction, but let's just stay with the early Vienna circle because actually they had a huge problem with the sciences because most scientists would simply say, look, there is what we can observe, but then what we observe actually points to other things that we can't observe. In other words, you know, we see this, this, and this, and that leads us to suggest that there may be something else that we can't observe at present, but we need to postulate in order, in order to make sense of things. And again, for example, if you think of the discovery of the electron, that was originally simply because, look, we can't see this, but we need to invoke this to make sense of what we do. And in many ways, you know, Christian theology is doing the very same thing. It's saying, look, we see this and this and this, and we ask, what's the best way of making sense of this? And the, the very classic answer is there is a God, and this God actually helps to make sense of things. 
moving on to the theme of hope. I mean, that is such an important theme. And I think that, you know, there's been enough false hopes in the history of humanity to make us very, very wary of this. And indeed, when some people use the word hope, people immediately, are, you know, are suspicious. You know, this is something that we think um, is likely to be dishonest.